0: Hi, everyone. This is Drew Perode here, executive producer of the Broken Brain series and host of the Broken Brain podcast. The goal of this podcast is to continue the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the series and invite guests that we highly, highly respect to help us dive deeper into the topics of brain health, longevity, and living our best life. I'm excited to have you back for a new episode and to introduce to you a friend of mine, Dr. Maya Sheetreat. Dr. Maya is a neurologist, herbalist, urban farmer, and author of The Dirt Cure, Healthy Food, Healthy Gut, Happy Child, which we're going to talk all about. She's been featured in the New York Times, the Telegraph, NPR, my favorite, Sky News, the Dr. Oz Show, and many, many more. Dr. Maya is the founder of the Terrain Institute, where she teaches terrain medicine, earth-based programs for transformational healing. She works in studies with indigenous communities and healers in Ecuador, and is a lifelong student of ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred. Dr. Maya, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Excited to have you here. I want to talk about dirt. And I think that your work will be new to some of the people that are listeners of the Broken Brain Podcast. And I want to dive into why we all really just need to go outside and start playing in the dirt more than we are right now. Help us understand the importance of dirt.
1: So when I started talking about dirt, the idea was that it was three things. It was being exposed to germs and microbes, eating fresh food from healthy soil, and getting outside into nature. And what's happened is that we've become a very sanitary culture because we value hygiene and being sanitary. And, you know, what ended up happening as we often do is we sort of swung the pendulum. I mean, when we first discovered germ theory way back when with Louis Pasteur, people stopped eating things like yogurt and sourdough bread because it was thought that they were contaminated. Mm. So we became very extreme and that's really persisted in a certain way. Um, that we've become afraid of microorganisms and we've become afraid of dirt. So I wanted to look at the scientific literature um, because common sense says maybe it's not so bad, but um, there's actually quite a bit of science that supports that as well.
0: And where did the motivation come from? Where in your journey and evolution as a doctor, as a practitioner, as somebody, as an herbalist in the space, where did the motivation come from to even begin to dig down this path?
1: Well, I've always been very connected to nature and the natural world. So I think, you know, foundationally, that's always been there for me. But in addition to that, my son, uh, my youngest son, actually, when he was a year old, got very sick and started having a lot of episodes that looked like asthma. And his pediatrician put him on lots of rounds of antibiotics and steroids. And it kind of like went on and on for about 10 months until we actually realized that he was allergic to soy. And that was Mm. my own detective work. And that took me on the whole journey of the dirt cure in a certain way. But what I ended up realizing is it wasn't just solving that mystery. It was then recovering him and healing him from being on all those antibiotics and steroids because removing soy totally eliminated his breathing issue. But then, you know, he had a really disrupted microbiome, the bacteria and organisms that live in and on our body. Um, And I had to do a lot of work kind of basically getting our hands dirty so that we could help him recover his biodiversity.
0: You know, you shared earlier that uh, we kind of went too far in one way went the pendulum, you know, humanity has always been around dirt, has been in these situations, has been exposed to all sorts of different types of bacteria. And it's been part of what has helped our uh, immune system evolve in the way that it has. But where, uh, where do you think, even though the literature has been out there and you've dug deep into it, why do you think it is that for so long... This fear of bacteria and dirt persisted, even though little bits of information would come out in in the medical literature that we had gone too too far. Why Why do you think it stuck around for so long?
1: Well, because people have died a lot of infection. So, I mean, clearly it's it's an issue, right? But the question is, why Why does why does that happen? You know Who's vulnerable, right? One person can get an inf- infection and kick it within a few days. Someone else will get an infection and never be the same. Someone else will get an infection and, and die, right? I mean, there's the whole spectrum. So um, what do we do about that? And I think when, we dis- when antibiotics were discovered, um, it was like a miracle, right? It was a miracle drug that was going to save everybody. And it has saved a lot of people. Um, but what we didn't know at that time was, you know, because we hadn't really asked that question is why do some people do so well, you know, when they get an infection, really most people and what happens to those smaller percentage of people who really do struggle or, you know, worse. So, um, that's where the fear comes from, I think. And it's a very legitimate fear, but, On the other side of it, I think what we're starting to learn now is that it's really not the microbe that's necessarily the problem. Um, Because what we're learning is that there's a lot of bacteria that are actually benefiting our bodies in a lot of different ways, and I know we're going to talk about that more, and also viruses, and also maybe even parasites.
0: Which there was a great lecture today, you were at the Functional Medicine Conference here in Miami, the annual one. Fantastic lecture today on the topic of using parasites to heal from different diseases.
1: Exactly. So the literature on that is growing and growing and growing. And so a lot of these organisms, right, people will say, well, what's the difference between a germ and a microbe? And what I always say is, well, really a germ is just a pejorative term for microbe. We used to think all microbes were bad. Now we think some are good. Probably almost all are good, quote unquote, in some way. There are very few that are maybe unequivocally like, you know, horrendous. Um, but for the most part, we walk around with all these microbes, including bacteria, viruses, and probably even some parasites all the time in our bodies and do quite well until the health of our own bodies goes out of balance in some way. And that allows things to, you know, behave as they shouldn't.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Of course, you know, our Broken Brain docuseries is all about brain health and all the different things that people suffer from. I want to talk about dirt and brain health and microbes. When, when we are, as many people today are growing up, young kids, and they, it's a super sanitized culture, hand sanitizers everywhere you go, uh, the most crazy chemicals in all of our cleaning products, in our laundry, our food even eating meat with antibiotics inside of it, getting treated with antibiotics. What are the implications of having such a sterilized environment and and how does that impact our brain health?
1: So what ends up happening when we have all these different exposures to things that are really eliminating microbes, right? And that could even include like dishwashers, right? I mean... And there's and there's data about this things like bleach. I mean, all the things that you've talked about that we're exposed to all the time, being indoors all the time, right? Think about it, kids in particular, but all of us are really inside. And outdoors is where we get our our um, you know daily dose of organisms. So um, in an ongoing way. So um, what ends up happening is that. When we're outdoors or when we're getting exposed to microbes, we want a very biodiverse um, exposure to lots of different microbes. And what that does is it helps the gut and the immune system to be healthy because the immune system, which is in the gut, right, and it's also in the brain, the immune system is actually very social. It's an, a very uh, curious Um, information processing system. And it likes to see lots of different compounds, so lots of diverse foods, and um, also likes to see lots of diverse organisms. And the more that it sees and experiences those things, the more relaxed it is, essentially, the more imbalanced it is. Whereas if it doesn't see very many things, right, then something's going to come along. Let's say it's a food, let's say it's a microbe, and it's going to freak out because it never saw that before. Well, when the immune system freaks out, whether it's in the gut or it's systemically, um, it starts to release something called cytokines, which are these inflammatory compounds, and they travel right into the brain and activate immune cells in the brain called microglia that wreak havoc um, when they're activated. So, when they're not activated, they're very nice nurse cells to the neurons, but when they're activated, they become mama bear. And then they cause lots of issues. And microglial activation, which comes from having a very out of balance, overly activated immune system, has been implicated in virtually every brain disease that we know of. Autism, ADHD, tics, MS, Alzheimer's, um, ALS, Parkinson's, you name it, that's part of the picture. Microglia are a big part of the picture. So we need a healthy immune system that's exposed to lots and lots of different things to prevent that.
0: So in this day and age, the awareness is growing and people are starting to... The term microbiome and probiotics are getting out there, but I think people are still confused as to, okay, so if we grew up in this environment, if we've had a lot of exposure, and this exposure can also come later in life too... People can be on antibiotic treatments later on in life, or can not have that exposure, um, and they're always curious about what. How do we begin the process of almost like repopulating the rainforest? Right, we used to have this beautiful rainforest inside of our body that 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 evolved, and now the rainforest is looking very barren. There's not that much life in there, so. They're confused and they're not even sure. So, are probiotics a beginning part of this solution? When you're talking to your patients, what's the beginning steps of how do we think about beginning to address these issues?
1: So, the very first thing for me is nourishing, nourishing the gut, nourishing the microbiome, um, and that you know, and then seeding it. Right. So, um, when we're nourishing it, I'm talking about having um, healthy fruits and vegetables. um, The fresher, the better. And if you can grow even some of your fruits and vegetables or herbs, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be anything complicated or difficult. It could be in pots, you know, with nice soil. Um, You're automatically getting a much uh, more nourishing, nutrient-dense, and microbiome-supporting environment in your body.
0: And just a quick question about that. I know that you have, um, I don't know if you call it a full farm, but is it, do you, would you call it a farm? The...
1: it's. A, I, would, I would say I, pro, I used to be an urban farm. Urban I keep farm. chickens. I used to have bees. I grow food and some medicinal herbs. I I'd, I'd downgrade it probably to now a big garden, but we used to call it an urban farm because it really was kind of, we grew a lot of our food there. Um, so yeah, I do. And I do keep chickens.
0: (laughs) So in this urban farm, large slash large garden, when you're growing these vegetables, you know, talk about like eating like dirt and being part of it. Do you just lightly sort of wash them? Uh, will you sometimes leave dirt on some of the vegetables that are there? Like, should we be afraid of that exposure?
1: Well, So look, I mean... Anyone who has a garden knows this, right? You go outside, there's some string beans growing or a tomato or whatever nice thing you like, you know, like a leaf of kale or blueberries. You're not going to like, you see it, it's gorgeous. You're not going to like pick it necessarily and like run inside and wash it before you want to put at least one in your mouth. I mean just one, right? It's like, so much
0: more enjoyable that way.
1: Right. It's and it's amazing. It's an amazing feeling to really grow your own food. There's something so I mean it's it's like this very beautiful sacred relationship that you're creating and there's so much joy in that beyond the, you know, beauty of just having fresh food. So Like to me, I mean, just having your hands in the dirt and reaching out and picking one of those things and and putting it in your mouth, of course we're getting some exposure to soil in that way. And I consider soil to be a nutrient. You know, the same way we talk about, you know, macronutrients and micronutrients and phytonutrients and all these different things, I'm also thinking about plants have stem cells and they also have um, pheromones, right? Like we experience kind of this chemical connection through just being in the presence of each other and then dirt soil. And I think, you know, people will kind of say, well, what about if the soil's contaminated? What if, you know, there's heavy metals or what if there's parasites? So, you know, um, that is, that is a conversation. And I think, you know, I test my soil before I start growing and I think, you know, it's not expensive to do. So I think it's always a good idea when you start growing and there are ways to remediate soil. Um, if it's a little contaminated and if it's very contaminated, actually, oftentimes the city or the state will come in and help with that. But, um, but when, when it's not, you know, like I know that my soil is good soil and I feed it a lot of compost. I do a lot of, I, I don't, rake leaves i mow the leaves so that the the earthworms have food over you know the i i live in a cold place so the earthworms over the winter have food to eat and they then feed the soil i mean i do a lot of work to give to my soil so i don't feel afraid you know to have a little bit of of nice soil um, on my food a little, you know, and of course I rinse my food. And if I buy from the grocery store, I wash it, you know, because I don't exactly know where it's from, but I do think there's a big difference between rinsing your, your food and having power washed, you know, food that you get at the grocery store that might even be coated with wax, for instance. I mean, it's a whole different experience for your body.
0: Talking a little bit more about dirt. Can you tell us a little about how exposure to that dirt uh, creates and produces a hermetic response inside the body. You talk a little about that in your book. I think that's a fascinating topic to share here.
1: Yeah, hormesis is something so interesting. So what it is is um, basically when a small amount of something that could be toxic or not good for the body in large doses, in small doses, um, tiny doses, is actually beneficial. And so... um, That's really the case with things like microbes, right, that we want to have some exposure, but we don't want to be overrun. Um, And those little stresses to the body actually, and this has been shown in a lot of research, um, whether it's a microbial exposure, um, like bacteria or a virus, or if it's um, food, like, you know, even like a little exposure, let's say, to... um, something like bitter that you might eat. And I'll talk a little bit about that if you want. But, um, you know, it could be even a little toxin, you know, that we would never want in a large amount. What it does is it actually causes all the um, cells in the body, the mitochondria, right, the energy makers um, of the cell, to step up and behave like more optimally than they ever have. Um, So it's an interesting thing when the body sees a small stress, then it responds in a very beautiful way to kind of do its very, very best. Um, whereas if that stress was a massive stress, it's, it's not necessarily going to be helpful. And what hormesis does is these little tiny stresses. I mean, think about like if you have a short fast, a small fast, that actually has been shown to potentially be helpful. Whereas, I mean, you know, if you have a two-month fast, no, right? <laughs> that would not be a good thing. Um, so the idea is that you want to help the body to learn to be resilient. The and body it's like and the that brain.
0: stress causes resiliency. Small, small, small stresses, s- s- absolutely. And, and probably most likely, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but just simply because that's how we evolved. We didn't have all the protections that we have right now. So there were these stresses and these interactions. So was that part of our evolution? What do you think about that? And we're sort of wiping those out so we're not getting the benefit of those small doses of stress?
1: Absolutely. I think... Our bodies want, they we, we want to solve problems. We want to do that. That's what we're made to do. Our body is made to do that. Our brain is made to do that. We as human beings want to do that. We want to solve problems. And what ends up happening when we don't have real problems to solve is we create problems, um, which is not good. <laughs> That's not good when we create our own problems. And we do. You know, I think like a lot of brain disease, a lot of autoimmunity, I mean, a lot of, you know that's really the body creating its own problems because we haven't given it enough work to do um, that we've evolved to do. And I think even like emotionally that can happen, right? I mean, it can happen in a lot of different ways, but we want, we actually, we don't necessarily know that we want stressors and that's what we've, right. We've tried to do this, that same hygiene thing, right? We said, we want to be clean. We want to be sanitary. We also want to be safe. We want to be really, really safe. So we're not going to have any of these stressors. And that's like a big reason kids stay inside too, right? And all of us do. It's like, what's going to happen if we're out, you know, out in nature, there might be something that's going to cause us harm. And so we don't want that, but it turns out we need it.
0: In a way, we're in a mode of hyper conditioning our bodies to play it so safe that they're getting bored. And almost going like crazy. Exactly. Wow. I've never heard that exact analogy. And I've been in this industry for such a long time. So thank you for that. You know, you hear things in a different way and all of a sudden it clicks. Mm -hmm. What a great analogy. Um, I want to go back to what kicked you off on this journey. And um, you were talking about your son's health and just, uh, you know, what we often find, You know, we're here at this annual functional medicine conference and, and a lot of the practitioners here are so fired up to ask questions. And I think a lot of people listening, they often feel a little bit of frustration because maybe their primary care doctor or the people there in their world aren't talking about these, these subjects. But I think it sounds like from your story, besides you growing up in nature, you were, you, you were forced to become open-minded because of what you were dealing with, this personal health crisis of um, your son. And so how was that for you emotionally. And when you were looking into these things, did those things, did you start to take some of those lessons and also apply it to your own health when you were researching into what was happening with your son?
1: That's such an insightful and good question. I mean, I think I see, you know, and of course, in the moment, it's so hard to feel that way. But I see my son as as a great teacher for me. Um, And his health problems were really lessons for me. So um, what I didn't know when I first started the journey of trying to help him heal was that, yeah, of course, ultimately that journey extended to my own life and my own way of healing and the way that I was going to heal my my patients, right? I mean, and it ultimately led to me writing a book about it um, so that people could, you know, use that that those lessons that he taught me, really, I feel, right, he, I call him my muse, because he really did um, lead me on that journey. And I do think that, um, you know, it's really important to always see, like, what can we learn, right, when something like that comes up for us. But um, it certainly has changed my life. And the way I do, I would say, virtually everything.
0: Does your son know that uh, he was the inspiration behind the, behind the book? And is that like, clear to him how how old is he by the way
1: he is now uh 12 and a half yeah um he knows he does know i mean
0: like kids are kids though yeah
1: i mean he's he's a he's a pretty um like he's a pretty old soul so yeah he gets it and i think he kind of is like yeah you know yeah i did that
0: (laughs) (laughs) um there's this really incredible article uh in the new york times and uh Things like how Dr. Maya spends her Sunday and (laughs) really beautiful uh, photo essay talking about how you and your family speaking about your son, you know, your husband, how you uh, go about a typical Sunday uh, in this urban uh, farm that you have. It's outside, just outside of Manhattan, Bronx. Yes, it's in the Bronx. It's in the Bronx. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you've created there for, for you and your family and and how you've incorporated uh, this message of of dirt and being outside for an entire family. Because I think that so much health information, it's one thing to, t- to try to apply to yourself. But there's, of course, so many mothers, fathers, family members that are listening. And there's always the question of like, how can I bring this to my family?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think from the point of view of like, whether it be changing diet, whether it be getting out into nature, um, you know, I think it's a step-by-step process, right? I mean, if you try to like transform everything all at once for an entire family, who's not quite with you where you are on the journey, um, it might be a smashing failure.
0: (laughs) You might get a lot of resistance. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And, and resistance is okay, but you know, I think, I think, um, incremental changes can be, you know, depending, but incremental changes are really what I recommend. Um, and so I think for one thing, um, just f- um, figuring out ways to, to get outside in a fun way, I think is is enormous. Um, and when it's possible to do it as a family, I mean, we integrated that into our time together. So when we did things together as a family, it would be go for a hike or go visit, you know, there's a, a beautiful educational farm nearby, or we would go, you know, to um, do like geocaching, which is this sort of digital treasure hunt, scavenger hunt kind of that you can do all over the world, um, and it's really cool because kids are sort of into right the digital stuff, and they want to have their screen with them. But what they do is they use that screen to find a little treasure. Um, not anything. It's like you know, the fancy. original
0: Pokemon Poke, yes, Pokemon Go. <laughs> it is. And so they'll
1: find that in, you know, they'll be we will be driving up a road and they'll be like, oh, in this park there's whatever, you know, and you can go in and find it and then leave something. So there are a lot of I think great ways to um integrate nature, but I think some of it is really like I mean, when I was a kid, I just was sort of kicked outdoors. Um, we didn't have the same amount of screen. I mean, people complained about TV watching in those days, right? But we didn't have, like, all the screens we have now. And, um, you know, I went and got on my bike and biked around and, like, went to parks. And, you know, I just, like, hung out in the grass with my friends talking. I mean, these are things that I think, like, there's a lot of, um, as a family, kind of, everyone can get tied up into their own thing. But, like, I think getting outside gardening. I keep chickens. I have a dog. Dog gets us outside, right? Going and gathering the eggs for the chickens gets us outside. Picking things for dinner from like even little pots outside, you know, that's a way to kind of have this interaction. And I think like the more different ways that you find going to a farmer's market to me is another way, right? And I used to give my kids like each a budget for something that they knew that they wanted and then something that they'd never tried before. And so they'd each go with money and be able to pick at least two things. Um, And they love the farmer's market still to this day. You know, they're a little older now. And if I'm going to the farmer's market without them, they'll say, oh, make sure to get us X, Y, you know, is there kohlrabi there? Or are those potatoes from that stand? Can you get those? So I think there's a lot of ways to do it. You have to kind of figure out what your family is going to respond
0: to. Do you think part of it, you know, you kind of hinted at this a little earlier. Do you think part of it, too, is that... Sometimes parents uh out of care for their kids have instilled this fear of the outside and kind of you know for half the day my parents would not know where I was. We just like you were saying you were kicked outside. My parents didn't know what I was getting into and where I was going and I'd be off uh in today it seems like there's a little shorter leash. Not to generalize. <laughs> not a
1: little shorter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Try to be gentle, but yeah, uh where, is that just this like unconscious, like psychological fear that we're instilling on kids, and parents want their kids to go outside and play? But in another way, there's also just like this fear of like the boogeyman that's been instilled.
1: Um, I think this is definitely a big problem, um, and I think if we bring the idea of hormesis into this scenario, right, where um, children need to problem solve. And they can't do that when someone's always looking over their shoulder. Mm. So being outdoors and kind of navigating nature, kids are naturally very curious. And kids naturally do very well in the natural world. It's it's We've evolved with this. It's in their DNA to go stick their hands in the dirt or roll down a hill or make a mud pie. That There's a reason. No one shows kids to, how to make a mud pie. <laughs> you know, they know they want to do that or build a fort, you know they see things and it's natural it's totally innate so um, but this kind of but all the different things that come up in the process is part of it's part of this hormetic thing where you know no you don't want to throw them out and say like we don't want to see you for 7 days you know navigate the forest on your own but at the same time um, you know having a few hours outside with no one looking over your shoulder that kind of hormesis really teaches them to be more Resilient.
0: I, have, I think the other thing that it does, and I forgot the school of thought, but there's a whole school of uh, you know, really sort of coaching parents to leave their kids alone in terms of the hyper stimulation that just even comes from questions. Mm-hmm. Too many questions during the day and kids being overstimulated and I think even just being outside, there's a little bit of just a break from things. Um it's really interesting. I was at it was in Kenya, I went with the group uh Summit Series a couple of years ago, and we went out to this um northern part of Kenya uh Namanyak and we were all in our land cruises and everything and you know there's tons of elephants that are around in this elephant sanctuary over the course of uh thousands of acres, this protected area. And we would drive and it would be the sun would be setting and we would see these uh um sambru tribe members, cousins of the Maasai tribe, little kids, five, six, seven, eight years old. It's almost completely dark at night and they're just walking around and somebody in the group asked our uh guide aren't these kids scared like aren't their parents scared and they said no what for like they're okay they're out there and this is how they learn this is how they learn to be brave and strong and they know how to defend themselves and they're okay and I know you spend a lot of time with uh indigenous groups and cultures I'm sure you've seen something similar just this little bit of like letting kids go out and figure things out
1: very much so, and I think in addition, they're also though I do want to say they're kind of, babied for longer than we baby kids. So Interesting. I, Can I you want talk more about that. that? Well, yeah, like it's common for kids to be in those in those communities to be breastfed for a lot longer than mm. we usually would breastfeed kids here, and like they don't, you know, they're they're kind of with their moms, um, kind of doing. The women's stuff, right? Because those roles are a little more divided in in most indigenous communities. Um, until they're probably five, six, seven, eight years old, then eventually, you know, they might go through some initiation. It could be before puberty or after puberty, where then they start doing more bold things with the men, but um, if it's a boy, but I would say. Um, they're just there is just a general level of comfort with Mother Earth, and and I don't say that you know kind of lightly or in a woo way. I mean they're truly deeply deeply connected, and this is something that is passed down from generation to generation. They they know they teach it in every little thing that they're that they're doing. You know from like they know where all the food is growing. They know where wild things are. They know how the animals behave. These are just they're they're deeply in relationship with plants and animals and and really the whole invisible world of you know the jungle and and you know the spirit world even and so they navigate things very very differently um, and and they might be afraid of things that we would never think to be afraid of but um, at the same time are very comfortable with a lot of things that we fear um, but what I do want to also say is that that connection with nature whether you're you know. Indigenous and living, you know, in more wild place, or if you're, you know, living in a suburban area or even a, a city, um, the benefits of being in nature, whether it's, you know, even in a park or going and being in the forest, if you can kind of find a a spot. I mean, actually, even New York City, I, many parks um, have even forest land around around where I am, and I know in other cities that's true too um so it 's very possible we also get so many other benefits, and the benefits are have been measured they 've been they 've been published that you know it improves mood, it improves executive function, it improves focus, it improves creativity, it makes you more relaxed, it improves sleep um, it improves the immune system, so we have a boost in anti cancer proteins and natural killer cells when we spend time in the forest. So, like, here are all these different benefits. We're feeding our microbiome because soil is um, the m- most biodiverse thing that most of us come into contact with, hmm. other than stool. Um, <laughs> the most biodiverse thing we want to come into contact with, we enjoy coming into contact with. Um, so, so, you know, there are all these other benefits, you know, that we get from, from being in the natural world and that children and adults both get, there's no pill that does that. There is no supplement that does that, you know?
0: It's like we all, when we're in it, we forget how much we missed it. You know, Mm -hmm. when people go outside and they really spend time and they decompress or they go on a family camping trip, they have that moment of just letting go and breathing so deep and being like, oh my gosh, I needed this. And... We're starved for nature, and so we need these reminders to get back out and do it before life and the stimulation and the priorities of everybody else takes over and we think that we don't have time. Exactly. But we have all the time. We don't We do not not have the time to do it. Um, I want to go through a few other areas, you know, going back to uh, the work that you do because you also see patients and, and you treat people and you put them on different programs. And I know your work is a combination of a few different areas that you've really brought together into this unique Practice. You have a background in herbalism. Um, you have this background in functional medicine, your traditional background. So when, when a patient comes into you comes to you and they're suffering with a whole host of, could be a whole host of different systems, what's your methodology and approach of how to figure out what the right solution is to take them down this path of healing?
1: Well, so I see a lot of uh, pretty chronically ill People and many times kids, and um, they have a lot of times they might have been to, you know, 12, 15 other doctors or medical centers. Um, and that's not always the case, but let's say it would be a child who's, who's, you know, been affected in that way um, and who's, who's sick in that way. Um, so I believe that before I can ask someone's body or brain to do anything, including heal, I first have to give. I have to give something. So that means, um, and it's hard, right? Because people are always trying, like, someone's not feeling well, You're someone's sick, especially if it's a child, like, all you want to do is get them better, get them better. But the first thing we have to do is sort of nourish. And nourishing is a lot of different things. You know, before I was saying nourishing in terms of food, and that's, of course, the case, you know, whether it be food or, you know, and I'm thinking even of, like, I might I might want them to be on nourishing teas, right? I mean, I might be thinking of soups. I might be thinking of a lot of different things that can help kind of nourish them in that way, Um, different kinds of plants, um, which could be herbal. Also, you know, actually herbal medicine. Um, But also I want to um, think of things that are going to make them feel held and cared for without making demands on them. Like um, it might be something like getting um, Reiki or, um, or a massage or um, something that's really, they literally have to do nothing at all, but just be. And I think um, that's the most important place to start is to just um, kind of respect the the body. Um, and when I say body, I mean the physical, emotional, and spiritual body, right? I mean, that is that is what I'm thinking about. So we need to really respect all of those bodies in a sense before we can ask the bo- the mm. we can ask them to do anything then i start to think about okay what you know once we've done that and we've kind of settled things down a little bit um you know and i feel like i've gained I don't just mean trust, but, you know, in the sense of they trust me, of course, I want them to trust me. But I've gained kind of a trust and a trusting relationship with physical, emotional and spiritual body of that person. Then I can start to say, okay, what are we ready to do? But I will do labs. You know, Um, that's a little bit of a trauma. (laughs) I don't personally do them, but I will sometimes look at labs in the beginning because I like to have a snapshot of where we are. I don't do baseline. you don't do what i don't do tons of labs but i do like to in the beginning do a big baseline um to just have a sense of of where we are um and even though it is a snapshot and i don't live or die by the labs i like to i like to have that as a little guidance um and then and then what will come after will be you know um i usually will try to be really gentle so i'm not a I'm not a person who loves to have people on, you know, 60 supplements three times a day. I think especially for children, but really for anybody. For me, it's, um, you know, we don't know where we're going to end up, right? We have an end point in mind. We don't always know if we're going to reach that exact end point um, or goal. But what I care about, because also we don't know how long it's going to take, is that the journey is that we treat the journey as just as important as that end point.
0: Because often these kids have just gone through so much. And there can be uh both for the parents, of course, the parents have gone through so much for these kids that are that are sick. I'm sure some of our listeners can can relate and um in the strong urge of wanting to get better, there can be so much stress associated in the process, so it's very unique to hear a practitioner saying, "How can we make sure that this journey is doable?" I'm sure not everything is always enjoyable but there are things that are there and it's more likely that this is going to be a long-term change
1: absolutely and it's not always enjoyable because i might give someone herbs you know that might be a little bitter but i actually you know we talk about how to make it something that you know is not going to be as as stressful um to go through and i think part of it also is that there are some small unpleasant experiences that it actually is good to develop some mental fortitude around like you know you're taking something that doesn't taste you know delicious but that's okay it's you know it's going to help you get better there's lots of delicious things and this thing is it's okay it's a moment in time and you you're brave and you can do it so I do think that's important but um yeah I very much want to make the journey Um, a healing and enjoyable, as enjoyable as possible journey. And I think a lot of people, whether it's, you know, with themselves as a patient or with their kids, they feel a lot, a tremendous pressure to, well, you're not doing enough. You know, I want you to do X, Y, Z and ABC and all these other things. And, you know, just always remember, I feel like, or I try to remember because I went through it with my own son. You know, the doctor or the person who's recommending all these things is not living your life, you know? Um, so it's important to know what's going to work in your life and also to understand that there are ripple effects. So I might see 20 different lab abnormalities, but I don't need to solve every one of them because sometimes if you solve three or five of those abnormalities, um, then all 20 will get better because the body actually, um, the body and the brain want to heal. They naturally and inherently want to heal and they have the capacity to heal, We just have to create um, the right resources and the right environment for it.
0: There's so much growing awareness around food and the different effects that food can have, especially on kids. And of course, we live in a day and age where without even really trying, it's so easy. You go to the grocery store, maybe 20 years ago, there was no heavy amount of sugar in your pasta sauce. Now, everything has sugar. It's so much easier, just like it's so much easier to get addicted to technology. People would get addicted to watching television, you know, back in the day. But now with this interactive component, it's a little bit more easier. And I think with food, too. And one thing that we often see from parents is that when they know that their child is struggling with some health issues and they want to make shifts in the diet to help them, maybe cutting down sugar or increasing other foods, it can be a very tough thing. And they're always looking for little morsels and gems and everybody has a different way of approaching it, but you work and the unique advantage point you they have is that you work with so many kids. Do you have any tips or suggestions? I know you talked about being gentle and every kid is going to be different, but when it comes to specifically the dietary component of trying to clean up the diets of, of, of kids and children, any big picture lessons?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually go through a lot of this in my book because of course, Kids can be really resistant and you've got, you know, schools and, you know, grandparents and friends, birthday parties. All the things, you know. I mean, I remember going to birthday parties with my daughter when she was little and um we couldn't we'd have to go searching for water because um all they would have out would be soda at Crazy. at the party. So um, you know, it's definitely there's a lot of there's a lot a lot of possible challenges out there, but I think, you know, from my point of view In your home is where you can make the first significant changes. And so um, for me, that's, I think, the biggest focus, right? Because um, that's where they're always coming for most of their food. And that's kind of also um, your shared uh, relationship and knowledge and wisdom and, you know, the whole community, communal aspect of eating. So I think it's really important to kind of model, you know, healthy food. um, And that's number one not to get too extreme too quickly the incremental changes i stand by that and and replacing things so say just for example you know your child absolutely adores um like ranch doritos or something like that um you might you know and there's going to be resistance no matter what the change is but you might go from that to like um tortilla chips right you know, maybe you'll find like organic tortilla chips if you can.
0: So this brand Siete or? Oh
1: my God, I love that. <laughs> That's the brand,
0: right? Siete chips?
1: Well, right. Yeah, they yeah. have. So they have even, it's not corn tortilla <laughs> chips. It's actually yeah. made from um, cassava, cassava, tapioca. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, I love that product. I think it's really nice. But um, what might be, you know, whatever's available, you might start with something, you know, not so, not so different. Um, Than what they're used to in a tortilla chip with, you know, salsa or guacamole or, you know, whatever they like to to dip, maybe that would be the next thing you'll do. And then from there, you might say, oh, well, maybe we'll try plantain chips, you know, Um, or the siete chips, Um, although they kind of taste just like tortilla chips, I feel like. (laughs) Um, And then from there, right, you might say, actually, like, why don't we fry up some plantains? you know, or some taro chips or make sweet potato, um, you know, make some kind of sweet potato fries or, you know, I mean, in other words, that's not necessarily the exact journey, but, you know, you're going to kind of go from one thing to the next. And, you know, I think being super extreme, like having zero sugar um, and zero any kind of junk is is a challenge. I think that's a challenge for kids. I think that there's a way to make it as healthy as possible by kind of doing this replacing thing and replacing thing. And then if you're doing sweeteners, it's great if you can if you can use more nourishing sweeteners, like sweeteners that have antioxidant properties. And I talk about all of this in my book in a lot of depth. But let's say, you know, honey or maple syrup or blackstrap molasses or even um, even like evaporated cane juice are actually have antioxidant value. Now, that does not mean go crazy and have tons and tons of that. But if you're using that for the thing that, you know, the sweet treat you're going to make, and it should definitely be a treat and not something that's, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, um, or even every day. But if it's something like that, then you know that you're kind of bringing in something that still has uh, some nutrient density. And so it's kind of Basically, it's, it's giving, you know, it's giving to the body.
0: You know, I think you mentioned right when you first started down these topics of these changes that parents, parents can make, um, and that individuals can make in their life too. You, you shared something, which is that there's almost this like theme of modern culture. And that theme is you're not doing enough. And I think every, you know, so many families feel it. And I think that sometimes so much of the pressure comes from just that background feeling. I'm not doing enough for my kids. I'm not doing enough for myself. I'm not doing enough for my husband, my wife, my partner. And that seems where a lot of the stress is. It's like if we can slow it down and remove that, then we can celebrate these little wins along the way and have fun, again, just like you're trying to do for your patients, have fun building this journey together with our families.
1: Right. I I think you're spot on. And I think, you know, one of the things that I... Tell parents or or people who come to my practice if it's for them, is um, you know this isn't about fixing someone, right? Like this isn't a broken person, and your job actually, even if your child, let's say, has you know a chronic illness, their job, your job is not to fix. Okay, you could put together there. There are three things parents can do: they can love their children, they can advocate for their children, and they can give them the resources that they need. But beyond that, it's up to the child and the child's body and you know like body, mind, spirit, you know, to to do the healing. So I think like I've said that to to parents and and they've actually cried because that pressure is so high that it's their job. And also because very often they don't feel supported by their medical team or their family or other people in the process of trying to get their kids better. So, you know, that can also be a big issue. And I think there is, you know, I'd say I see a lot of moms in my practice, both for their kids and also for their own health issues. And, um, you know, I think there is sort of some underlying... You know kind of misogyny in the medical system around not believing them not trusting their intuition you know and and it's very disempowering and you know really makes a lot of people doubt themselves
0: doctors literally telling their patients especially moms like communication in a way that they might be crazy right absolutely and 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 also this thing so it puts them in a place parents especially where they're in fight-or-flight mode so it's almost like they're coming to you and hopefully, you know, maybe some of them are listening to this podcast. It's like they're detoxing from that. They almost, they almost felt like they had to just be ready to go to battle because that's what the traditional medical system requires of them to try to advocate.
1: Part of the process of healing a child is is healing their parents mm. because that, you know, they're so inextricably connected to each other that when there's... a a parent who's super stressed out or, you know, having a lot of kind of issues or, or fears or whatever it may be around their own health stuff or their child's health stuff, it makes it very hard for a healing process to begin. So Mm. there's a lot of kind of clearing that's important. Um, And when I see a child who's, who's not getting better when, you know, because I do see so many kids, I sort of know when like, we've done all the things that usually make kids better than I have to look deeper. And sometimes it is that like there are fears and kind of attachments around, um, around not, you know, around that process, what will happen if kind of stuff. And, um, you know, but these parents are hearing things like, you know, uh, they'll go to a doctor and say, I observed this and they're being told that's impossible or no, that couldn't have happened. Like, you know and so that they 're kind of trying to train people not to believe their own eyes mm.
0: I want to really acknowledge you because so much of your work and in your book and also on your Instagram page, which I love thank you all these beautiful quotes, so much of it is like the emotional health, the spiritual health, yes, the food that we eat is important, and the environmental factors and and the dirt component all these things are there, but just as important as that is. All these other factors that play into our health, play into our kids' health, and it's really bringing a much more, even we think of holistic medicine as like, oh, we need to talk about supplements, we need to talk about food, but there's even like a bigger world, which is what about nature and community and our emotional health and our purpose and why are we here? And uh, I really see you as an example of a physician that's setting the tone and making sure that that conversation is inclusive of all those components. So I just want to thank you for really doing that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I feel really strongly that um, we need to not just have a language to speak about our physical health and even our emotional health, but also our spiritual health. And, you know, so I'm actually in the process of creating this Terrain Institute um, where I want to train people in how to speak about physical, emotional, and spiritual health, and so that we can create uh, vocabulary, right? Because we don't even know all these really sensitive, sensitive souls that walk through the doors of my office. Um, it's like what's really going on with them is sometimes, right? Sometimes there's a lot going on in their physical body, primarily, but sometimes it stems from a lot of emotional and kind of spiritual stuff. And when I stu- when I've studied um, with indigenous healers um, in their communities, that's a very beautiful kind of way that they look at at people. They think physical health is like, you know, down downstream. And where everything starts is with spiritual health and then emotional health. And so um, that's really what I want to, well, together I want to dive in with people, right, in this program. I mean, it's not about me doing all the teaching, but it's about us learning together, you know, what this vocabulary really looks like when we consider our emotional and our spiritual health. And my belief is that that really also um, can be very, very supported by, by nature and plants and animals and mother earth. So, um, that's really what I'm very excited about right now.
0: A few weeks ago, you posted a little teaser on Instagram. It was a photo of your book and you wrote about, you know, the follow-up and the sequel to this work is coming up soon, but it's way (laughs) much more fun than a book. Is that related to this project that you're sharing?
1: Yeah. 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 That's
0: super exciting. It's very exciting. Um, and while the community waits for that, are there books? If somebody's thinking about dipping their toes in this for themselves, for them, for their family, for their kids, are there books that have had a fundamental impact for you or a place that you would get people started if they're looking at the emotional-spiritual component, things that have just been valuable to you in your journey and evolution?
1: Oh, that's, a, that's like a big question. Um, I mean, I, I think from like an emotional-spiritual perspective, I love um, Pima Chodron. Um, She wrote a book. I mean, she's written so many books, and all of them are wonderful. But, um, you know, when you're in a a difficult situation, there's a great book called When Things Fall Apart. Hmm. Um, It's an incredible book. It's really beautiful. So that's one that I love. Um, I love love a lot of Stephen Buhner's work. Um, He's written about plant consciousness and, um, you know, what – Sort of our relationship with the plant world. I love that. It's very again physical, emotional, spiritual, and uh, gosh, there's so many. It's like those are <laughs> a trying great. Trying to few. Like, picture my bookshelf right now. <laughs> um, who else? Uh, well, I love also. Um, there's a lot of books now that are coming out about like the hidden life of trees. Yeah. Um. So like basically, what we're learning is that that trees are. Um, have community with each other. They, they give to each other, you know, they both compete with each other and also select um, kind of their own group and community that they, that they nourish and help. And they have these sort of um, networks underground where they really, in the face of different kinds of input, will either, um, will send nutrients to other trees or let them know something's coming that could be dangerous and um, that they that they in some ways, you know, see, hear, feel. So I think we're really learning a lot about that and um, it's
0: almost like we can learn how to be better humans through studying trees.
1: Right, but not almost. We can we learn can learn how to be better so humans. much um, from from the the plant and the natural world. and I actually believe and that's why you know part of what I'm going to be teaching is this earth-based healing. Um, but it's really about how do we how do we speak to the earth and how do we, um, and how do, we lis- how do we listen to what the earth has to say to us? And um, there are so you know, because being in nature, um, it's a place where we can really and truly be seen.
0: Because we are nature, you know? Okay. I mean, I think for so long, through technology evolving and other things like that, there was so much focus as a culture of separation. There's us, there's nature. And now the movement with the work that you're doing, some of the authors that you mentioned, other individuals, it's like, no, 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 we are nature, and if we separate ourselves from it that's where a lot of these problems happen in our life whether it's related to our gut bacteria or these deeper spiritual and larger questions that we're all dealing with
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um yeah i think i think Um, we're going to find that a lot of the answers, right? I was just reading an article about, you know, health entrepreneurship or something, and they're like, always look to technology. Always look to technology as, you know, what's going to kind of be the answer to everything for ecology and health and, you know, da, da, da. And I just, I was like in total disagreement. And I'm not saying that technology is always bad. I don't believe that. But um, I think we're going to find that the answers are actually going to be Um, in the earth. They're going to be in the earth because that is our fundamental connection um, to life.
0: It's an important message. And I thank you for bringing it to our listeners of this podcast, Dr. Maya. Where can people learn more about, uh, I know they can find your book, The Dirt Cure on Amazon and other bookstores. Uh, It's been out since 2016. It did really well. We have many copies ourselves. Where can they find more about uh, some of the work that you're up to, your website, Instagram?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So drmaya.com is my website. Um, and, uh, you know, I also am active on Instagram as Which you I mentioned, <laughs> um, just kind of writing about my, my daily thoughts and pictures of things that, um, you know, I do out in the natural world and, um, you know, and Facebook, those are really the, the big places and, and soon, you know, will be, I do also, um, retreats. So, incredible. Um, all you have of that- one coming
0: up at, uh, Kripalu, right?
1: Yes, Kripalu uh, is at the end of June, and um, and more to come after that, and that will all be, you know, on my email list if you come to my website, and also on my social media.
0: Incredible, Dr. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: It was really a pleasure.